Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a series of podcasts to help you build your resilience for a better life, both at home and at work. In fact, we're going to help you get your bounce back. There are lots of different subjects, people and tools and techniques across this series, so please feel free to subscribe. Information can be found at personalresilience.com and you can access other goodies and online courses and coaching as well as today's show notes. In the meantime, please enjoy today's podcast. So today I'm talking to Dan Lawson. Dan's got some really interesting perspectives on both um, personal and corporate resilience and change and all sorts of things, including happiness. So hi, Dan, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me, Russell. And I'm spotting by the accent that you're not based in the UK, perhaps. No, I'm I'm American, so I'm over in the US. Very good. And um, um, how is it to be an American at the moment? Pardon? How is it to be an American at the moment? Oh, it's uh, sometimes it feels like a Saturday Night Live episode, you know, <laughs> some of the times. We're, but, watch, uh, we're watching the American resilience coming to the fore, though, aren't we, as, as people begin to cope with what's going on over there. Oh, yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to have some grit at the end of this run. Yeah. <laughs> so, for sure. Good. One way or another, we're going to get stronger. So. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the aspect, yeah. isn't it? So, Dan, yeah. tell, us, tell, us what, tell us what you do. How would you, how would you sort of summarize it for people, what, what you do and what you're all about? Well, I guess, um, so I am a, uh, in, the, in the States, I would be a, uh, a licensed a mental health counselor. That was my background. That was what my license was initially. Right. So I was, I was trained in doing therapy. That's, you know, that's how I got started was working with people and helping to make change for people. And, uh, and then it, that slowly evolved from helping people and then uh, through a series of, uh, you know, I guess uh, unplanned events, you know, getting more involved with helping organizations and people in, in business and larger groups of people. So um, when people ask me what I do, I actually, what I say is that I specialize in treating amnesia, you know, forgetting. Because what I feel like in general is that we as people are obsessed with who we're not. And when we, be, when, when we forget who we are, all the goodness and all of our strengths and all of our successes, when we forget who we are, we become who we're not. And uh, we end up getting down. We end up you know, doing self-destructive things. And whether that's an individual or whether that's a, a whole organization or a larger group of people, when we lose an, uh, our identity, when we lose sight of who we are. So I, I try to make sure that when I encounter people, whether it be on a one-on-one -on -one basis or whether it's with a, a larger group of people or an organization, that I help them to remember who they are. That's kind of my mantra. That's kind of like my mission in terms of uh, the work that I do, Russell. That's fascinating. So, so if I can unpack that a bit, then so how do people forget or how do organizations forget who they are? What, what, what's going on? Well, and for, for us as people, our minds are, uh, from a neurological standpoint, our minds are survival mechanisms. So they are always scanning for threats. And by scanning for threats, they start to get good in crafting a lens of what's wrong all the time. Mm -hmm. So individuals, as well as companies, can start to pay attention to the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is the more that you focus on the wrong things, the more you start to feel 
uh, I don't know, it starts to create distress. You know, we, uh, you know, whatever we focus on gets bigger. So if I focus on the wrong things, if I focus on problems, well, then I'm going to see more problems and more obstacles. And so quickly, organizations or people start to become stuck into ruts or stuck into problems that get bigger. So a lot of times I help people to measure what they do want and you know what they do want to see both in their life or in their business or in their, uh, or in their career and uh, to, to really discipline their attention. Because attention is a limited resource mm. and a lot of times people are spending it in ways that are less than helpful, you know? So, so what, might a, what, might a person yeah. be, what might a person be doing if they were spending or uh, focusing their attention on, on things which are less than useful? What would, they be, what would they be angsting about? What would be going on? Well, I think for people, I think we have like this, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, you, you hear there's a lot of research right now and a lot of talk about, about shame and what we call scarcity, right? Yeah. So scare, scarcity and shame, I guess the, the tagline of this, our cultural shame problems, at least in the Western world, is, you know, this mentality of I'm not enough. You know, you watch television or you listen to music or you, you watch a lot of social media and a lot of our marketing and advertising conveys to people, well, you're just not enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not, uh, you're not old enough to do this. You're not smart enough. You're not successful enough. And it drives almost an insatiable um, fear and competition. And so people, I think a lot of people that I encounter, they, uh, they, they start to, you know, compete. And when you compete, you know, uh, like my buddy always says, he's like, well, whenever you're, you know, um, competing, there's always a winner and there's always a loser. Mm -hmm. And you get to play both. And so we got a lot of people that end up feeling like they're losers at times, which isn't true at all. But it's through, uh, through that lens of, you know, uh, that scarcity, that belief that they're just not enough, you know, and, and it disrupts their whole life. It disrupts their family, some of them. And in businesses, they end up, you know, um, you know doing things that disorder their organization and they lose sight of what their core values are. Um, so, so in a lot of ways, when, when I, I meet with people and talk with people, uh, my, my job is really to convey to them that they are enough, that they are enough so that they can just, uh, show up to life and participate. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I teach many people that it's really not about competition. I mean, competition is, uh, you know, uh, I, I love love the work of Ben Zander and his wife. And uh, if you're familiar with them or your your audiences, they got they've got some great things, and it's been inspirational to me. But Ben Zander always talks about breaking the cycle of competition, and with that, you know, with with that whole cycle of competition, getting away from that, and instead just moving into contribution. Right. You know, just showing up and giving of yourself, showing up and just bringing what you got. Because what you got is enough, right. and that—that's kind of again my uh, way when I want to treat amnesia for people, whether it's on a, a larger scale or a smaller scale. Right. That's so. So that's really interesting. So, if I can, you've given me ten, ten things to think about. So I'm just going to work my way through them if I may. So the oh, first well. is the first is that you talked a lot about that organizations and people focus on the problem. Uh, yeah. And 
but you're not saying it's you're not saying it's wrong to have a, a regard for the problem. It's when when it becomes an obsessive compulsion or something, or a of a, or an overfocus on the problem. Is that what you mean? Yeah, uh, noticing problems isn't noticing problems really isn't um, you know unnatural. We are geared up to look at what's wrong because it, it protects us. Yeah. But, but the thing that our minds become you know off balance though if we become like you said preoccupied on what's wrong. Because there's the resourceful parts of people are much better coming up with solutions than the parts of us that are hurt or the parts of us that are afraid. You know, there's been interesting research they've been doing with primates, which I think is fascinating. And what they're looking at with the neuro, the, the neurological components of primates is that you know, remember when you're in school, your teacher would say to you, you know, you can learn from your mistakes, right? Yeah. Well. What they're finding now with primates especially is we can't learn from our mistakes, or th that's their theory, but they're seeing this proved in primates, is that we can't learn from our mistakes directly. We have to study our progress or our successes first yeah. to be able to learn and adapt from our um, problems or, or mistakes or struggles. So it's, it's, uh, it's not that the problems um, um, can't, be, can't be dealt with or can't be solved, but in a lot of ways you know, direct focus on them doesn't allow us uh, to usually generate solutions. And sometimes it can create anxieties or urgency because now we're more, our mind's agitated. And when the, 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 the person is agitated, you know, as Sherlock Holmes used to say, fear destroys our powers of observation. Yeah. We don't know what is, uh, you know, we don't know what's working. So, so I, I, we want to focus more on what's working in our lives to help build resilience, whether it's on a corporate level or an individual level, or even in a marriage, to help grow more of that. You know, um, uh, does that make? Because whatever you focus on gets bigger. Yeah, that makes so, a lot of sense. So it's a more it's a more of a nurturing or developmental mind shift, isn't it? It's to say mm -hmm. what's what's working and how do I make more of that, rather than what's yeah. what's not working and how do I attempt to make less of that? Because that does, it, there's no logic in that when you think about it in a way, is there? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like measuring a hole or measuring the absence of something, you know. Yeah. So, so one of the things you talked about was the, the relentless pressure on people of um, not being enough. I thought that was an interesting phrase, and you talked about two things. One, which is people's inner self-esteem um, is part of this um, self-identification with not being enough or good enough, and and then we're bombarded with external effects. Um, is there a way of being able to deal with that? Do you, deal, do you need to deal with both of those things at the same time or separately? Or is one more important than the other? Where, where would you start with that whole process? With the process of like, you know, treating, treating that feeling of, of, of scarcity, of not being enough, that yeah. shame? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, because this, this affects all of us, I think, in a lot of ways. I think in a, in a, in a human way, we all feel this. To some degree, it affects every dimension. Um, so, when when people are you know really you know in a rough way, one of the things that's you know very helpful, I think, is really to, in many ways, acknowledge you know what's right with us and study the things that we actually do right. Right. You know, um, and study the things that we do right. Now that, you know, in a lot of ways, it's very hard, and we need other people. And so, in in many ways. You know, as we kind of, uh, you know, we get lost in, you know, what, we're, what we don't do right, we have to go back to what we are doing correctly. Yeah. And sometimes we need other people, 
And, and what I find is even more helpful, because sometimes it's hard to see it uh, from the inside out, is to see it in other people. Our minds kind of need to see, have mental currency, uh, you know, to uh, know that they're good, to know that we're good. And so Martin Seligman, who is an, an American researcher over in the States, he does positive psychological research. He talks about the concept of flourishing. And what that is, is really a, a, a paradigm shift. So when I work with people and they want to kind of break this, I guess, this chain of, uh, of shame is I have them make the radical decision to see on purpose what's right with other people, you know, on a ratio that's higher than normal. And see, with, with most of us, our relationships, we pay attention to one positive attribute to every one negative attribute. That's what keeps the balance. Right. But in Seligman found that, you know, you know essentially we are, uh, when people are flourishing, you know, whether it's in a business organization or whether it's a person that has a remarkable um, positive attributes, they're paying attention to five positive things in the people around them or the environment to every one negative, which is, again, an unnatural choice for us. Because like we talked about in the beginning, our minds are naturally, they default to what's wrong yeah. and assessing what's wrong. So I encourage people to pay attention to what's right in other people, but that's not enough. We want to breathe life into it. So sometimes I have clients or I work with people in, in families or in marriages, you know, and, and even in, in, in companies, we, we ask them to, if you see something good, talk about it. Goodness that's not talked about doesn't exist, you know. It's like the old story of the husband and wife. They've been married for, for 35 years, and the husband's reading the paper, and the wife looks at him, and she says, she says, Honey, you never say you love me anymore. And the husband puts the paper down for a second, looks at her, and says, Honey, I did say that 35 years ago on our wedding day. And if that ever changes, I'll let you know. Yeah. But that's how we are with our spouses, with our, with our colleagues, with um, our children. If you see good things... Breathe life into it. And when you participate in a story like that, it inspires you. It makes you feel connected to goodness. And it takes away that shame. And, you know, one of the things that affects a lot of people is facades, like a, a false sense of ourself, a mask almost. Yeah. We can take the mask off when we see the goodness. Yeah. But when we see the bad stuff, we have to wear a mask. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all about trying to take the masks off, you know. Because we want authenticity. I think that's what we, we're seeing this in all dimensions, whether it's corporate or personal. We want authenticity. So that's, so a, that's just some stuff. That's a very interesting point you made there because in the corporate world, and uh, when we, we, we had a um, let me digress a second. We had uh, Dr. Michael Pluse on one of the podcasts who talked about the idea of highly sensitive people from the work mm -hmm. of Elaine Aaron in the States. And um, and she talked very and he talks very much about this idea that you have to create a very positive culture for people who have higher degrees of sensitivity. And what you're talking about there is actually how leaders can begin to build that positive culture, because what you're doing is you're starting to notice um, what's good, what's working, where something meets the standard, where something's great, and. And there's sometimes there's a reluctance in corporate life, isn't there, to, to get into this sort of happy, clappy, dare I say, sort of American, leaping about the place, foaming at the mouth, positive mental attitude stuff. But it's not. It's, <laughs> what we really mean is this is actually very important in terms of people's performance because the more we can lift their self-esteem, the more we can develop people's confidence, the more we can actually bring more of, the, more of their potential to the job at hand, whether it be living a good life or whether it be doing good work, perhaps. 
Yeah, because you're getting the whole person. More importantly, you're getting the best parts of people coming forward, and they can participate. You know, when people are ashamed, they don't participate at work very well. You know, if I uh, if I don't think my boss likes me or I don't think I'm doing a good job, I don't show up. I don't take risks. I don't I don't work very hard, and so you know, or because I don't feel like I'm worth it. Yeah. So you're right. It, it's so strange though, because for us as people. Well, you know, I, I was for for a number of years. I did a training, and one of the things that I was training people in is what we call solution focused um, brief therapy or solution focused uh, work, yeah. which um, I apply to businesses as well as obviously my clients. And when I would do these trainings, what people would say is they would say, "Well, you're just psychotically optimistic," and I would be like, "Well, I don't know. I don't think that I'm psychotically optimistic. I just want to measure what's really there." You think about it as leaders, if, if leaders are, are good and effective, you know, remember that whole um, the glass is half full, glass is half empty kind of thing? Sure, sure. You know, well, I would have these people come to these trainings and they would be like, well, I'm a realist. The glass is always half empty. And I would be like, that's fine, but what are you measuring? Yeah. And again, it goes back to you're measuring your non-reality. That's not even the presence of anything. You're measuring predictions based around fear or what could go wrong. And now we've built a whole plan of action. Now, if I'm a leader, I've built a whole plan of action or a whole strategy around contingencies around my fears or on my worries. Or if I'm a person, my life just becomes a response or a reaction to what could be wrong. And I don't feel as in control. And so, you know, with, with, with leadership, um, I think that when leaders decide to look for what's right, it is unnatural and it does take courage because we know especially from a social psychology standpoint, we've got a researcher in the States, and I think Harvard, um, Harvard uh, Psychology School over here, that, that had basically proved that when people are uh, given the opportunity to think who's smarter, a critic or a person who's talking about what's right, so you've got the, the critic on one hand, or you've got an uh, individual who's, who's um, talking about what's right, they will think that the person who's talking about what the goodness or the positive stuff, that person's naive. Yes. We just assume that critics are smarter. Yes. Because for you to be a critic, you have to be a master of something. But, but that, that's not even true. No. But that's a bias that we have as human beings. And so there, you see in me meetings or you see in families or you, you hear people, they just want to be know-it-alls and they want to be critical. And it's a power dimension, but it's also, you know, in many ways... It's we want to look smart, we want to appear smart, but again, it takes radical discipline of attention to see what's right, to see what nobody else can choose to see the goodness in other people, because goodness is attractive. Goodness transforms people and creates relationships. You know, judging people and criticizing people doesn't make their best self show up to work or their marriage or or anything, and it doesn't generate strategies or creativity. Remember, we only, we only can create things when we love, you know, and I, I think that when we're too busy being critical or judgmental, we, we get rigid. We don't create. We usually start to do self-destructive things. Mm. Yeah, um, it is interesting. You brought up Marty Seligman twice now because um, you, you could, we could argue he's the fat father of, of, uh, of uh, resilience as well as positive psychology, and um, I think you're... The, the reading the book Flourish is very good, as as are some of these other things. And he talks a lot when you're talking about optimism. There, he talks a lot about the process of becoming optimistic, 
yeah. and, and how you attribute things. So there's a sort of mental toolkit. And I think mm -hmm. what you're referring to, or I think the way I'm understanding what you mean by attention is actually how do we train our thoughts to become um, subservient to our needs rather than the other way around almost. Yeah. Yeah, that, that we have to guide, you know, our, our, uh, our focus of attention becomes our reality. And then we, we can only participate in the reality that we, uh, we, you know, we design in some ways, you know. If I don't, uh, if I believe there's no possibilities, well, I'm going to behave in a certain way. If I believe that things can change, you know, it's that whole change in mindset from being a, a fixed mindset, as they say, to a growth mindset. Yeah. That, that whole idea that people can change, that I can learn things, that I can become stronger, you know, despite the struggles in my life, that, uh, that, that is, in many ways, the notion of resilience. You know, that, that's an attitude in some ways. And, 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 that, and, and what you're saying is, and what you're saying is sort of common sense to many people and a revelation, mm -hmm. and a revelation to many. Because we forget there are people who really don't believe that. Because yeah. it seems to be obvious that you would have a growth mindset, but actually, it's it's not as obvious as a, it's not as obvious as it first appears when you talk to a lot of people, and I guess when you've done your therapy sessions, you've been into organisations, you'll see people who don't believe that to be true. This person can't change. This person can't learn. I can't learn. I can't do this. I can't. and this this negative dialogue exists, doesn't it? And this idea of we don't know what we want, but we know what we mm -hmm. don't want. And so we get into this horrible sort of negative spiral of um, of the defense defense from risk rather than going out and see and going out and making something good happen. Yeah, yeah. We we end up playing it safe and losing more of our. Uh, it's almost like it's almost like our fears make us uh, you know play you know play safe and then we we actually miss out on a lot of life. And then we beat ourselves up for having done it in the first place, no doubt. Afterwards, if we're not careful. Yeah. <laughs> so, the you t you talk a lot about happiness. So, t tell me more about what you mean by that. Well, uh, one of the things is so with with uh, with people. You know, uh, one of the things I want. I always, you know, one of the common denominators with people is they all have different things. But most people say that they want to be happy. And um, what I find fascinating, the longer that I practice and the longer that I uh, observe this is that I feel like a lot of us are doing things that um, don't make us happy. I mean, they might bring us pleasure. But I want it, I, my, one of the things that I want when I encounter people is to really help them become more joyful and more happy because I, I feel like that in many ways, you know, being present to other people and helping them do that is what, what my life should be about. You know what I mean? If, if I don't make other people the best version of themselves, well, then I really in many ways haven't really done what I can in, in a sign of caring for them. Yeah. So when, when, when I talk about happiness, I find that a lot of people don't know where happiness comes from. And I'll, you know, they, people want to be happy. They buy things. They get in relationships. They get careers. They get jobs. They go further their education. But I look around a lot of times and people look miserable. I, I see a lot of people, and, you know, especially uh, people that are successful in the eyes of the world, and they look miserable. Yeah. And so it got me wondering, where does, why are some people happy and why are some people not? So my take on happiness is that it's a side effect. Happiness is a side effect of something else, like all good things. You know? yeah. Happiness is a side effect of giving my life you know, to something else. 
So as I give myself to something else, whether it's in service to my country, whether it's to my spouse, whether it's to my children, whether it's to, you know, uh, an organization and service, when I do those things, um, happiness, happiness is a side effect of offering myself as a gift. Now, happiness then increases based on the size of the gift I have. So, if you think about myself being a gift, well, the only way that I can get more of, uh, more, more, uh, more of that gift is I have to create uh, self-discipline or you know, uh, you know, self-possession, as they would say, so that I have more abilities to give of myself. So when I talk to people, I, I will tell them the secret to happiness is, is discipline. Can you say no to yourself so that you can say yes to something deeper, something that you want more, mm-hmm. whether it's you know better marriage, whether it's you know um, a, a better a, you know better everything in life, a better career. You know it takes discipline to be a parent. It takes discipline to run your own business. It takes discipline to, to maintain your relationship. Um, and all good things come from maintaining discipline. Ironically, the world is saturated with all these you know easy fixes, and they want to give people pills, but there's no pill for discipline. And it's painful, you know. I, I it's it's not it's not always comfortable to say no to myself. And you know, when I started in the field, where I came from was uh, substance use and addiction and all that. And, and a lot of people, especially in the states, they believe that happiness is just being able to say yes to everything. Yeah, but that's really not saying yes to everything is addiction. Saying yes to everything is slavery. You are only free to the degree to which you can really say no to things. Right. But a lot of people don't know what they want to say yes to. Yeah. And, 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 and so I want, you know, if, if nothing else, in, in, in many ways, I want people to understand the power of saying no to themselves and being able to give themselves to, to something greater. Um, and that creates, again, resilience because I own, uh, well, I control myself. And that makes me not at the beck and call uh, of urgency. That makes me not feel controlled by other people or my organization or my boss and it makes me less fearful you know so so does that is was uh is that making kind of sense you know you know what that is really insightful um and i just want to i just want you to go over it again because i think that's really really important and very powerful so just so this process of discipline to be really clear is discipline with yourself yeah yes this discipline with yourself Saying no to yourself so that you can say yes to whatever the moment requires or to something higher. So what, so, you know, so what sort of things might I be saying no to? Might it be, um, what, what, what sort of things might I be saying no to, I think? Well, let me give you, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a simple example and, and just to kind of illustrate it. So okay. many people find food pleasurable. Food is something we all need to do, right? Yeah. Now, I want to be healthy because I have young children and... You know, at night, you know, I have the urge to go out and get, like, fast food, right? Yeah. That is what my body wants. My body, just for whatever reason, wants that pleasurable experience. I don't need it, but it says go do it. And so I have to say no to that, no to that temporary pleasure so that I can say yes to the deeper thing, which is my health, you know, to uh, my well-being so that I don't end up overindulging, you know. So I have to have... Uh, a, a deeper yes, actually. Maybe that's the thing. You know, Matthew Kelly, who's a you know a, a, a quite uh, well-read author, always talks about having a deeper yes, something that you you know that allows you to say no 
to these things that are pleasurable, things that your body wants. So, but you have to have something that you want even more. Yes. You know, uh, um, I may, I may, may find, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, certain things pleasurable, but I say no to them because I want to maintain the integrity of my person. I want to, you know, I get home from work and daddy wants to take a nap, but my kids want to play. Well, I have to say no to my desire to go take a nap upstairs so that I can say yes to something deeper, which is my children and their needs in the moment. And so that's what discipline allows us to do. And, that's, and so people are looking... Yeah, so, so to leap in, so that's really interesting because I can see there's a vicious spiral, which is if I don't believe I'm worthy of the yes, then I'll never be able to say no to everything else. And therefore I get my reward from pleasure. So the thing to fix is this ability to build the discipline and to work on what you... Well, firstly, to have a better yes, but for, secondly, to know what you say no to. So there's a conscious process, perhaps, of catching yourself at that point of yeah. desire, maybe? Well, I, I think, I think in, in many ways, it's like anything, is I think it's easier if we start at the beginning and look for... You know, so I would, I would work with people that struggle with addiction to hardcore narcotics or, or drugs and different things, or people that were very depressed. And both, both you know, people struggle with, you know, like you said, saying yes to things, their feelings or a drug or something that in many ways seems to take a hold of them. So we look for little ways to practice discipline. We look for little ways, whether it's, well, my body says I should have an extra cookie. We'll say no. You know, say no to the cookie. But again, you know, you know, the reality of it is, is you've gotten more grit because you've learned to tolerate uncomfortability. Yes. You, you figure every time you say no to yourself, you're you're building, um, you're building a type of grit because you can tolerate being uncomfortable. And the more you can tolerate being uncomfortable, the more you'll be successful in business or with your relationships or when things get difficult. So you can look for little opportunities. You know, making yourself get up from, uh, you know, in the morning 15 minutes earlier. You probably want to lay there in bed, but Make yourself get up 50 minutes earlier. But you need to know why you're doing that. Yes. And, and that's the big thing, too. If you don't know why you're doing that, well, then it's just, it doesn't make sense. But again, little changes, you know, spiral into bigger ones. We don't need to change everything. We just need to try to do one thing well. So these people that I work with with different types of addictions, or you know, they would just look for little ways to, to cultivate discipline, whether it was getting up earlier. One, one individual I worked with years ago, he had a, a serious uh, cocaine habit in, uh, you know, what we did was he also realized he had a serious, um, you know, uh, desire to drink uh, Pepsi-Cola, like, all throughout the day. He was doing, like, two liters of Pepsi-Cola every day, which wow. isn't good for anybody either. No, yeah, I know, Only right? Pepsi-Cola is good for but, uh, Yeah, well, yeah, it's good for them. But he, he stopped doing that, and I didn't even ask him to really stop the cocaine, but I asked him to stop and reduce the, the Pepsi-Cola. And his body really wanted the Pepsi-Cola too. Mm. But learning discipline in that one area was transferable then to that other area of uh, the cocaine use. And it made it so much easier for him to um, you know, stop that cycle of addiction on that end. And so I, we can look for you know, anything. And I think that's really interesting what you're saying here because what people often do is they have a try at the, the biggest thing they've got to solve. And then it doesn't quite work, perhaps, for whatever reason, and they give up, rather than saying, I need to be practiced at this. So I need to start with the little things and build my build the skill, build the confidence, and understand that you can do it. And then you work up to the bigger thing, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, like, a, it's, like, it's like lifting weights, you know? Yeah. You learn, you know, we got to do like two pounds before we do 10 pounds. 
you know, if you do too too much weight, you you end up in, end up injuring yourself. You know what I mean? And then you get defeated, and you're like, I can't do this. And so again, that and that's another key component for people to build self worth, or you know, is discipline. Remember, you know, uh, we we there's a lot of work with you know when we talk about treating that shame is we want people to grow in self compassion, loving themselves. Now, if I love myself. All those scenarios I just gave you with discipline, those are reflections of how much I love myself. I love myself so I say no to drinking two liters of cola. Or I love myself so I make myself go to the gym. Or I love myself so, you know, so I make sure that I go to bed at a reasonable time. Mm -hmm. And those simple things are the game changers. I I think that we put too much stress on these big things, not realizing, like you said, like, You've got to start at the beginning. I know we love to be at the end and start at the end, but we've got to start at the beginning yeah. and, and, and really uh, be patient with ourselves. I think it's um, also that thing that we forget this is life's, a life's work, isn't it? And, you know, it's, we've sometimes taken 40, 50, 60 years or however many it is to really hone this bad thing, this bad habit, this negative thinking, and you expect to fix it in 20 seconds without support, accountability, help, guidance, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. We, we we have like a sprint type of attitude towards life. We want on to the next thing, uh, and I think we we need to kind of take on a, a marathon marathon mentality of training. You know, we we have to train to be successful. We just we don't want to just try. You know, I, I feel like you know, when when people you know just try, they they seem to fail and 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 get frustrated. But again, when we take a different mindset of it being more of a marathon, you have to train, you have to live differently, and you got to be patient with yourself, you know, and um, and, and that 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 allows you to, to 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 go the distance and to see the changes you want. Like you said, maybe not on day one, but hey, in four years you'll be different than you are today. Yeah. And, but it's a day to day, it's a day to day thing. It's funny, um, isn't so, it? I forget it was someone clever, much cleverer than I, who said something along the lines of that you can't unlearn a bad habit you've got to learn a new routine and part of this yeah. saying no is a new routine for some people and I mean yeah. you know I'm thinking of myself I'm thinking of my own issues here and thinking you know that's interesting why am I not saying no well that deeper yes is probably missing or that or that no is so compelling that I haven't linked mm-hmm. it to a deeper less so deeper yes I should say so there's a there's a piece of work you can do for yourself when you build your own self-esteem and link it to your own self-awareness and your habits and behaviors that you can start to unpack this. Dan, I'm finding this extremely useful and really practical. Um, yeah, if, if nothing else, I'm having a lovely therapy session, even if no one else is. Uh, but I think there's some really, <laughs> really very good concepts that you're talking about this. And I've just looked at the time, and the time's flashed by. And um, I, I feel as if we've only begun, begun talking about this subject. So who knows, perhaps we could even hook up and do another one of these at, uh, at a later date. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, it's been fascinating talking to you. But if people want to get hold of hold of you and talk to you, ask you, um, see what you do, maybe engage with you or work with you, how would they get in touch with you? Um, you can go on my website. It is uh, catholictherapysolutions.com, where we study the universal goodness of people. Um, that's what the word Catholic means. So, so we're all about studying the universal goodness of people. And I also have a YouTube channel called The Hope Weapon. And the hope weapon, you know, every week I put out a video on uh, various topics that people find relevant, whether it's growing in virtue or a- increasing in uh, the different aspects of resilience we've covered today. And people can find my contact on that website, you know, 
and get in touch with me in that way. And I, like, again, I have ongoing contact for people. And if people want me to respond, if they have questions, feel free to email them to me through my website. And I will be responding to them on Fridays and giving them things that are um, useful and practical. And, and I try to make the videos uh, to the point so that people don't uh, have to listen to me ramble for 20 minutes. Just try to get right to the point for the, 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 the blog answers for them. And I know you also have a corporate practice as well. You work in, in the world of business as well. So, um, yeah. How, how does how, how how is it the same contact method mechanism for that? Yeah, yeah. Same thing. If you want to contact my uh, contact me through my uh, my uh, website, and again, we do stuff for organizational health, whereby I work with uh, business uh, business owners or people working on professional organizational uh, development on tactics and. Uh, presentations for, for their, their, their employees. Uh, I also specialize in burnout. So that, that's one of the reasons why a lot of people have contacted me for organizations and uh, values, uh, core values clarification for their staff so that there's unification and uh, a collective mission for the people involved. So yeah, but you can contact me through my, uh, through my website. That's the greatest way to, to reach me through there. Superb. Well, we must we must hook up again sometime and talk about burnout. Burnout, I should say. This has been. Um, I'm sorry, an Americanism here, but this has been awesome. I think, and I've really enjoyed it. And um, Dan, I can only thank you enough. And I think you'll tell from Dan Stiley. He seems a very practical, pragmatic person, and it's just so nice to have someone who's got a strong opinion, delivers it really well in a clear way that I've got a lot of benefit from. So, Dan, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Russell. So all the very best. Um, I hope you have a good day in New York and uh, hopefully speak to you very soon. Now, you take care. You too. You take care. Cheers. Bye now. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found some value. Um, there are lots of other podcasts in this series, lots of different speakers, tools and techniques and subjects. So please subscribe and see what else might be helpful for you. Um, it would be smashing if you could pop across to iTunes and drop us a review. As I said earlier, we've got tons of information on our sites, lots of free goodies, ebooks, webinars, and such like, uh, as well as some uh, online courses and specific coaching, sometimes from some of the speakers you've heard on these podcasts. So I hope to uh, have your company again on the next edition of Resilience and Rambled. Bye now.